hey there how you doing welcome back to my youtube channel thanks for joining me here today i wanted to do this a uh, short little video for you about some of the questions that have come up with the uh recent headlines about the pentagon possibly having debris from ufos bigelow aerospace and so forth um, I've done some videos about this in the past, and I thought I would just kind of bring it up to date based on what I know about this subject just to clear things up. So a lot of the discussion in the past couple of weeks has had to do with this Anthony Bregalia FOIA request to the Pentagon for uh, information about debris from ufo uap vehicles and the you know the pentagon responded saying uh, a lot of this information is exempt from disclosure but we refer you to these defense uh, investigation research documents from atip the dirds as they were called and uh, people have concluded based on what i've been listening to you know on youtube and other places that maybe this whole thing has been overblown, you know, that there isn't any UFO debris and so forth, that the Pentagon doesn't actually have anything. So I think it's important to remember here that this is a very complex topic and there is a difference between analyzing alleged debris from extraterrestrial vehicles there's a difference between that sort of phenomena and actually intact ET technology that people have reported to me that they've seen functioning pieces of extraterrestrial hardware uh, that have been recovered either from crash sites or possibly ejected by these vehicles or even from uh, craft that would have been shot down. Now, these are very credible reports. I've heard this for many years now from very credible people, either people that were involved with this directly or very good accounts from people that knew people that were involved in crash recoveries. So the first uh, aspect of this has to do with people that have been uh, involved with crash recoveries. Now, recently we had Sergeant Clifford Stone pass on. He was someone that had been involved, I think, according to his accounts, with a number of crash retrievals. He said he had seen these over the course of his career in the Army and that he had been involved with this. Now, I actually have had someone on this channel here who said they were offered the opportunity to be in these crash retrieval projects. This was Gary Sterling, who I had on uh, this channel in relationship to his sighting of a very bright, brilliant object near a missile silo near Velva, North Dakota, where he was a missile security guard uh, in the early 1970s. And we've had him on the show. We've interviewed him a couple times. And he said in the latter part of the interview, separate from this sighting, which actually left him and his colleague in their uh, you know, security alert team truck left them with burns on the side of their body that was exposed to the object. Gary did say in the latter part of the interview with me that he had been offered the chance to be involved in UFO crash retrievals. Now, he said that his 
job description would have been not the person that actually is digging up the crashes and taking the pieces. Uh, he was told he would be posted on the outskirts of these sorts of projects to deflect people unintentionally visiting these sites. His job would have been to do camouflage of these sites to make it look like it was some ordinary operation going on there that the Air Force might be involved in or some other group and to kind of give it some sort of other appearance to prevent people from knowing what was going on there. Now, someone did write in on my YouTube channel here. They said, maybe Gary was talking about broken arrow flights, you know, experimental aircraft that might have crashed that they would just euphemistically call UFOs, you know. Or it could have been satellite retrieval, of, you know, Soviet satellites, something like that. And they were just calling them UFOs. But I asked Gary about this directly, and he, he denied that. He said, no. He spoke to someone who had been involved in these crash retrievals in the Air Force at Minot, someone who had come back from these. Now, these were long missions that would last six months to a year, according to Gary. And they preferred people who didn't have families, so you could be out there almost continuously during the cleanup period. Six months to a year is a long period of time, and it just seems that that would be very long for something as small as a satellite, uh, even... Uh, a black budget U.S. aircraft, you wouldn't imagine taking a year to recover the pieces of. Um, so Gary said when he asked his superior officers about these missions, they didn't uh, pull any punches about it. They said these were UFO crash retrievals. They didn't say they were black budget experimental aircraft, uh, downed craft perhaps with nuclear weapons or something like this. He said that they were UFOs, and this person who came back from uh, one of these missions said they literally were craft from, you know, beyond the Earth. That's what he said. So that's one type of witness testimony we have, that there are real crashes of real pieces of stuff. Uh, the debate recently has been about debris, you know, stuff that's been analyzed under microscopes, very small pieces of things, you know, these various cases we've heard about from Jacques Vallée and Gary Nolan from various locations where they look at the particular metals and so forth to try to see if there's something that maybe couldn't be produced on Earth, therefore they would have to be from somewhere else. But the evidence we have from people like Clifford Stone and Gary Sterling and others is that there really were crash retrievals. Now, I've spoken to someone who said that they had a buddy that served in the Marine Corps once in the kind of a special services within the Marines, and this person had been involved with crash recovery, but they didn't want to be known. They didn't want to be connected to it. Perhaps they had signed NDAs. This seemed to me to be a very reliable source of information, and the person who experienced it, who was the guard around this crashed craft, uh, whose job it was to really guard it life or death from any interference, uh, went into a very lengthy description of what the material is like, what it was like to be around it, even what it was like to uh, briefly uh, look inside it. So uh, we do have testimony from people that say that they've been involved with crashes or were offered these sorts of jobs. So again, we're talking about intact craft or uh, in, in many cases, you know, retrieval of big pieces of material, not just microscopic pieces. Now, 
The other type of evidence that I've come across is literally people who've examined this material. And I'm not talking about small pieces. This particular witness who I've mentioned before, and I'll put the, the video up here, someone I met at a conference. I have had a chance to spend several days with them. They don't want to come forward yet. They didn't want to be interviewed on YouTube or anywhere else. But they told me they had been approached by someone, some group, to see if they could figure out how a large piece of a UFO material from the hull. He actually, when he put his hands apart, he said it was about this wide. It would have been on the part of the hull because of the way it was curved. He said he could imagine the craft could have been 30, 40 feet apart just based on the shape of this particular piece. And it had uh, several characteristics that really make it seem like it's not from here. First of all, he said that the material appeared to have been made in zero G, that the way it was constructed isn't something that we can construct here on Earth in a gravity-based uh, environment. It would have to have been done somewhere in zero G, and it was a rather large piece. This wasn't something small that you would have you know, manufactured on the International Space Station. Secondly, he said the isotopic ratios were not the same as materials that you find in our part of the solar system or the galaxy. They were made of isotopes that were not even made the way we make isotopes here on Earth. He said these materials were made by doping these materials with larger or less or taking away some of the electrons. So the electron amount of the electrons in the atomic structure of these materials was different than you find on our planet. Uh, yeah, this is something that you could make, but uh, it would be extremely time consuming and expensive. And what would be the point of that? So it, it, would, it was something that, according to my understanding, starting in the 70s, scientists could make materials like that, but it's a very you know, expensive, time-consuming process to do. Now, he described this entire piece of material as being simultaneously uh, made of these isotopic materials, but it also was the technology at the same time. So... Uh, in contrast to the technology we have, like our computers and our phones and things like this, where there's a shell around the components, this material um, actually was uh, a structure and a technology at the same time. And the third characteristic of it was, he said, it was made of a type of nanotechnology that we can't make yet on Earth. Now, this person uh, is an engineer who is from Silicon Valley. And this person would have, you know, the highest level of credibility if you were to talk to them. This is someone that is known within Silicon Valley. And he told me that this technology is not something you can make on Earth yet. The density of the structures and the circuits within the material were about a thousand years ahead of our technology. And we're talking about how densely you can pack, you know, electronic components into a small space in nanometers. And, and we know that, you know, it's getting closer and closer. But he said this was a thousand years even ahead of where we're at now. There isn't any way we can make it. So you've got these three characteristics that the isotopic ratios are different. It's made in a zero G environment and nobody can figure out how it works. Now, I will put up a picture based on what he described to me of 
what this material looked like under a microscope, an electron microscope. Uh, the, the way the topic came up, I, it wasn't someone you would associate with UFOs. I actually was at one of these kind of meet and greet dinner parties you have at these conferences several years ago. And, uh, and we were just talking about crop circles, and I mentioned in this small group, you know how I thought some of them were man-made, and someone said, no, they're made by UFOs. And it was this guy, this engineer I'm talking about, said, I actually, no, UFOs are real. I've handled a piece. And that's how we got talking about it. He suspected it might have been from the Roswell crash. He wasn't actually certain. Um, but in any case, the way the material looked at a nanoscale, the way he described it to me was wires going through this material of varying thickness. They, the wires would get thinner and then thicker. And at some point, they would kind of create this geometric shape and then go back parallel again. And then every so often in the material, you'd find these hexagonally, these hexagonal shapes that the wires would kind of loop themselves around through and then keep going. And the way he said this actually worked, it was a type of propulsion system, for lack of a better word, that would directly interact with the quantum field around it to change the structure of space-time so that you wouldn't have the same gravitational forces around this particular craft. That was the best he could make sense of it, but he said he couldn't figure out how it worked, and the people that brought it to him couldn't figure out how it worked. Apparently, I'm told that every 10 years or so, the people, whoever they are, that have these intact materials, I'm not talking again about tiny little pieces, I mean actually pieces of, of something large enough to actually hold and look at, uh, that they take it out of the basement and they shop it around to various experts in the field to see if they, you know, if the state of technology is advanced, science and technology, that we can understand how these things work. And that's really what uh, the same message that Hal Putoff told us at the 2018 conference in Las Vegas, SSE IRVA, where he said he had been responsible for creating, uh, well, creating the request for these 38 papers that were, you know, the product of ATIP to see what the state of knowledge was from the best experts on the planet to see if we could even make some of these materials. And by without telling, that was the whole point of the program, which people are forgetting, the 38 papers were not an attempt to prove the existence of UFOs. It was an attempt to hide the fact that the Department of Defense was interested through the ATIP program, finding out more about how these vehicles work. And the way you do that is by looking at each specific topic, being metallic glasses or metamaterials or effects of these exotic propulsion systems on biological systems or the Drake equation, things like that. And to see if anyone out there knew what was going on with the way these craft could work. So there was a lot of subterfuge involved with this. The program wasn't classified, but because the program papers, the ATIP papers were uh, just presented in this ordinary way like you might find in Science Magazine, nobody suspected it was actually for UFO research, but in fact it was. So um, it does appear based on my conversations, uh, there is actually another person who uh, was one of Steve Greer's disclosure witnesses who said that their dad worked at Area 51. And I remember him describing to me personally, just talking to him, that 
they would take all these different pieces from these retrieved craft and, uh, you know, try to assemble them. And he said one time they got them all assembled. They were out there at Air 51 and they, they turned, you know, they turned the switch on or whatever, and it just blew up. They couldn't, they couldn't figure out how it worked either. So these uh, craft and vehicles seem to be very far ahead of us technologically. And this is really what we're talking about here. The question about these metamaterials and the ones that Valet and Nolan have examined, whether they're truly extraterrestrial or not, it's an important discussion and it's one we don't have the final answer to. But we shouldn't forget that there are also people with a lot of credibility who claim to have either been involved with crash retrievals or have actually handled intact pieces of these technology. I mean, we're talking more than a few millimeters wide here, something you could hold in your hand, who've attempted to find out how it works, have seen it, and seen it closely enough to be able to describe to me at least what it actually looks like. Um, so this is more than a discussion about whether bismuth magnesium samples are actually extraterrestrial or not, whether they could be made on Earth. And that's a very important discussion. I just want to point out that this is one facet of this whole discussion here. Now, the way to deal with this, maybe you find this convincing, maybe you don't, uh, and either way is okay, but we need to find out about this eventually, and it has to be done in a way that the whole, the public can participate in the discussion. So, I mean, it seems to me the appropriate thing would be for Congress to grant immunity to people who've been involved in these projects so they can come forward and not worry about any consequences to their, you know, financial well-being or their health or anything else, so they can tell us what they've seen in congressional hearings, something like what the citizen hearing was uh, supposed to be in 2013, but this would actually be for real. I think that's what would need to happen because there are more people than I've even mentioned here, and they still don't want to come forward to tell us what they've seen. I'm convinced, just based on the small number of people I've run into, in my, you know, investigations, just going to conferences and so forth, that there are a lot more witnesses out there who've handled this material. It, it can't just be these few people I've met. If whoever actually owns this material, and it's, key, it's important to remember that it isn't necessarily the federal government. The federal government can give it to various companies in the same way that the Air Force at Wright-Patterson allegedly gave the Roswell medals to Patel Labs in Ohio uh, to see if they could reproduce it and so forth. And apparently they came up with nitinol, you know, a decade or so later, kind of a memory metal. I mean, I'm told that's how it actually happens, that the, the materials are given to other private companies, maybe they're public companies too, but it isn't in the hands of the federal government. So when people uh, have FOIA requests, the government says we don't have anything because they don't. They already gave it to someone else. That's how I think it, it's working. So anyway, this is a big discussion. It's a fascinating discussion. It's just important to remember there are lots of different types of witnesses out there, and we should be looking at all the evidence in order to make sense of this topic and find out, are these really pieces of extraterrestrial craft? It seems like an incredible story, but the caliber of the people I've interacted with tell me that it's true. Okay. So let me know your thoughts about it. Put it in the box below here. Uh, thanks again for watching, and we'll see you in the next video. Take care for now, and bye.